Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of December 15th, 2022. My name is Gregory Haddock. For today's reading, we will be covering the following stories. Jury awards $353 million to family of cyclist Gwen Inglis, killed by driver, by Andrew Fraley for the Jeffco transcript. Lakewood City Council members face email death threats, members divided on the cause and how to handle them, by Andrew Fraley for the Jeffco transcript. 12th Annual Arvada Firehouse Chili Cook-Off raises $1,235 for AFPD. Station 9 wins People's Choice for Best Chili by Riley Dunn for the Arvada Press. Faith Christian High School closing due to multi-million dollar debt by Riley Dunn for the Arvada Press. Golden's Holiday Parade, a holly jolly tradition by Corinne Westman for the Golden Transcript. And following up with various articles. Jury awards $353 million to family of cyclist Gwen Inglis, killed by driver, by Andrew Fraley. A jury has awarded $353 million to the husband and estate of Colorado champion cyclist Gwen Inglis, who died after being hit by a car in Lakewood. Ryan Scott Montoya, 31, struck Inglis in May 2021 on Alameda Parkway. Montoya had marijuana, meth, and Xanax in his system at the time of the crash, according to court records, and pleaded guilty earlier this year to vehicular manslaughter, driving under the influence. He was sentenced in June to eight years with eligibility for parole in 2025. The day of Gwen's death, quote, She was a champion gal like nobody's business, said Mike Inglis, Gwen's husband. She was just the epitome of what a good kid could ever be. The day of the crash was cool, overcast Sunday morning, Inglis told Colorado Community Media. He and Gwen had just finished a 45-minute park ride ride around Green Mountain Park, a warm-up for Mike's race later in the afternoon. That bike path around Green Mountain is just beautiful, and that's where we live, Inglis said. And we can just see all the mountain bikers on the mountain. It's just a truly a blessing to be there. Gwen had injured her ankle the previous weekend and wasn't competing, instead riding for another hour after Mike. She said, all right, I'll see you back at home and I'll see you in an hour. And I said, I love you. And she turned back and said, I love you too. Then she stood up and started going up the hill, heading back down to Bear Creek, Inglis said. As he rode away from his wife, Montoya drove by. His tires were inches from the bike lane, almost hitting Mike. He turned to another cyclist who was passing him, saying, That dude is going to kill somebody. 
And then three seconds later, Montoya crossed directly over the white line for a foot and a half and just plowed Glenn. Gwen, Mike said. I should have been home. I would have been home in six minutes. The $353 million verdict. We feel that far too often drivers are not punished for hitting cyclists, said the family's lawyer, Megan Hotman, a fellow cycling professional and teammate of Gwen's. We see all the time that people don't even get jail time. They get a light slap on the wrist. The Inglis family filed the civil lawsuit against Montoya in Jefferson County only a week after the crash. The announcement of the verdict on December 6th was substantial, $353 million. According to Hotman, the goal of the lawsuit was to deter others from this conduct and to hopefully save other cyclists' lives. The specific amount wasn't requested in the lawsuit, Hotman said. It was left for the jury to decide. So the jury sent a very strong message that this is not behavior that they tolerate, she said. And as members of the Jefferson County population, that sends a really strong message. According to State Transportation Department statistics, there were at least 113 car crashes involving a bicyclist in Jefferson County within the year leading up to Gwen Inglis' death. Three of those were fatal. There were 10 crashes the month she died, with at least an additional 169 crashes since, one of which involved Hotman. She was hit over the summer while cycling and badly injured, appearing at Montoya's sentencing hearing in a wheelchair with a broken shoulder and a broken knee. I hadn't undergone surgery yet. That was two days after I was hit, and I spent almost most of my summer in a wheelchair and using a walker, she said. She believes there needs to be both better infrastructure and tighter laws and punishments for DUI drivers who kill others, including cyclists. The eight years was a very dissatisfying sentence, Hotman said. Montoya is parole eligible in 2025, so he's only going to do a few years, and then he'll be back out. Mike Inglis, Hope for Change According to Mike Inglis, Montoya stated in court that he was unaware of the Colorado state law requiring drivers to give cyclists at least three feet of space while passing them. You get taught that, Mike said, whether from the driver's education or otherwise, but there's no refresher in society. He sees this lack of education as a major avenue for improvement for safety. Maybe that's what we're lacking. There's just nobody educating the general public population on things that should just be good etiquette. He said, infrastructure is another. Rumble strips to alert a driver they are drifting into the bike lane and painting those lanes a bright color green are cheap. Easy improvements, Inglis believes, could have prevented Gwen's death. Commenting on painting the lanes, it allows drivers to be more confident as they know where a cyclist path is. More so, he believes restrictions need to be tightened for drivers founding, found driving under the influence. He wants to see minimum insurance increased for repeated offenders, pointing out that the insurance payout from Montoya didn't even cover Gwen's funeral costs. He said that Montoya had been arrested for a DUI 10 days before striking and killing Gwen. 
According to court records, the incident happened in Gilpin County, and Montoya pleaded not guilty. How does he have his driver's license? How is that even possible? Nobody on the planet would say that is a good idea, but here we are, Inglis said. The multi-million dollar verdict breaks down into three categories. Economical, or lost wages from Gwen's death. Punitive, or the punishment and deterrent for others breaking the law. And emotional. It's the for the pain and suffering for me having to breathe into my wife's mouth on the side of the road as they turn blue, he said. That's probably not one of the best things that a military paramedic ever wants to have to do, but that's what I ended up doing. The highest part of the award, though, at $250 million, was the punitive charge. Quote, if the general public feels like they can be cavalier around cyclists and they don't have to drive safely around them because they don't fear going to jail, we were hoping that a civil verdict in this size would be frightening and scary and sobering enough that people will think twice about how they drive around cyclists, said Hodman. And more generally, they will think twice before they get behind the wheel if they're impaired. Former Edgewater sergeant indicted for unlawful sexual conduct. By Andrew Fraley. A five-year-long grand jury investigation into allegations of unlawful sexual contact and retaliation against a witness against former Edgewater Sergeant Nathan Geards has concluded. The indictment, the concluding report by the grand jury on December 7th, presents four counts of unlawful sexual conduct, two with use of force and one of witness retaliation. Geards was most recently employed by the Black Hawk Police Department, turning himself in on December 6th after being fired from the department when news of the indictment was released. The victim of the unlawful sexual contact Geards is accused of was a female officer with the Edgewater Police Department in two separate incidents after leaving a holiday party hosted by the department in December of 2019. According to the indictment, Geards repeatedly touched the victim in various places without consent and the victim moving with the victim moving his hand away each time. Both had consumed alcohol. The use of force consisted of Geards supposedly having shoved the victim against the wall, preventing her from moving away as he continued to touch her without consent. In December of 2020, an independent investigator was retained by Edgewater to investigate allegations of misconduct related to incidents at the holiday party. It concluded in February of 2021, Geards was made aware of the findings and told by then Edgewater Police Chief Mackey he may be disciplined with a multi-day suspension. Geards resigned days later. The intimidation of a witness charge comes from Geards before his final day of employment calling into his sergeant's office, patrol officer Chad Slavin. Geards believed, according to the indictment, that Slavin, quote, ratted him out and falsified information for the investigation. According to the indictments, Geards then, quote, told Chad Slavin law enforcement was a small community, that he knew people in law enforcement, and that he was going to ruin his law enforcement career and threaten to come after his family. 
The retaliation against a witness charge for the indictment is a felony. Geards is being held without bond at the Jefferson County Jail. Lakewood City Council members face email death threats. Members divided on the cause and how to handle them. By Andrew Fraley. Members of the Lakewood City Council say they and their families have received racist, sexist, and homophobic emails that include death threats for months. Lakewood police and the city's IT officials have been unable to track the exact source of the emails according to Mayor Adam Paul. Efforts have only been able to trace the emails to a server in Russia. One counselor feels that the police and city have not done enough to investigate the emails, while others, including Paul, believe the actions of some council members are perpetuating threats. Concern and divisiveness over the emails began months ago. Councilmember Anita Springsteen said she received an email in April that threatened her with sexual assault and the bombing of her car unless she resigned from city council. Springsteen has not attended a council meeting in person since, citing fears over the threat. She said the threat affects her ability to do her, her ward duties, quote, tremendously, and she hasn't felt safe coming in for an in-person events since April. What that means is I can't do my ward meetings. I can't attend executive sessions that are about major decisions involving the city, like the municipal judge and the contract of the city manager, she explained. What I feel like the council is asking me to do is to put my person and property at risk to attend meetings. Other members have received threats as well. Paul, along with council members Jeslin Shareze confirmed that they've also received threats. The most recent one came November 28th, just minutes before a council meeting where the topic of gun control came up during public comment, even though it was not on the agenda. I was disappointed, but not totally surprised, that it was a dead end, Shareze said of the threats only being traced to a Russian server. So there's not a whole lot more happening with that at this point because there's not a lot they can do. The email included death threats that were aimed not only at Shahrazé, but also her children. I think that's sort of the rub for me, she said. I've been dealing with the sort of discomfort that comes with that and the feeling of insecurity. As an elected official, I had a community-wide meeting on Saturday and I had to ask if I was safe to do this. While the city says it has done all it can to investigate, Springsteen thinks more should be done. She has brought up the threats reportedly in meetings to the point that everyone is sick of hearing from me about it, end quote. Springsteen alleges the city is working against her, putting up roadblocks that prevent further investigation. In one example, she feels blocked out by Lakewood police for not giving her the report on her death threat investigation unless she pays, which is standard police procedure. Quote, the idea that I should have to pay for this report for things that happened to me because of my service as an elected official seems absolutely upside down, she explained. If she requests it as an official, it becomes public record. 
The Lakewood Police Department said they investigate every death threat, no matter who it affects, and they claim each threat against a council member is still currently under investigation. Obviously, it's concerning anytime we get any sort of call from our city councilors that they are being threatened or harassed, anything like that, stated Lakewood Police Public Information Officer John Romero. We handle them like any other time. Springsteen believes talking about the threats is the, quote, only way to dial it back. But Charazé thinks mentioning the threats repeatedly at meetings has numbed the community to the issue. We have to keep rehashing this, and I almost didn't feel comfortable coming forward this week with the threat from Monday because it felt like there is an exhaustion on this topic. Charazé said, There's not going to be a reaction, and some of us are dealing with threats that are much worse. So I don't feel empowered to come forward in this because I feel like she's deluded it. Springsteen clarified that she was unaware other members were receiving threats, but also stated she felt members were minimizing her threat by saying they've received threats before, too. Charazé also believes members' interactions with certain groups agitated on divisive subjects have escalated the threats. Paul agrees. People on social media have said horrendous things about me, made allegations about me that are just so far-fetched, and you just get fatigued by it, Paul said, believing that to be partly caused by Springsteen's online interactions. At the end of the day, our safety and our community safety is never not taken seriously. Springsteen spoke at a council meeting in May about the threat she received in April, which looked like it was from Paul's city email address. Paul interrupted to clarify it did not actually come from his email. Quote, I am not blaming the mayor for this. I have been told that his email was spoofed, she said. I'm not blaming the mayor. Although his breaking in like that makes him look pretty suspicious, I would say. End quote. Quote, I know, Councilmember Springsteen, you think this is funny, but none of this is funny, Paul said in response later in the meeting. And sadly, a lot of it is perpetuated by folks on this council who have people in the community making just absurd allegations that are hurtful and harmful, and it needs to end. Paul added, We all have the opportunity to say enough is enough, and that means you too, Councilor Springsteen. You can put an end to some of this yourself. Springsteen took the remark as Paul telling her that she, quote, deserved it. It's a very obnoxious thing to say and inciting further violence, Springsteen told Colorado Community Media. I really feel like that's what happened with the dialogue in terms of people who have been affected. For another politician to say, well, she could have prevented it, it's stirring the pot. As another example of how some members believe threats could have been prevented, Shalrazé points to the November 28th meeting where she received threats just minutes before it began. Council had received an email from the Jeffco chapter of Moms Demand Action, an activist group that fights for gun control measures, expressing an intention to propose ordinances during public comment. According to Shalrazé, Council member 
Mary Jansen forwarded that email to gun rights activists, including Rocky Mountain gun owners. Doing so made Shahrazé feel like she was put in danger. There's no way for me to know if the threats are related to the comments there, but it probably puts some of us under a microscope to community members, and frankly, a lot of people outside of the community, that previously hadn't considered us in their purview, she said. Jansen could not be reached for comment. I do think there is a misrepresentation, often because people aren't really taking the time to inform themselves of what we are working on and the priorities, Charizé added. As some at the public comment session mistakenly believed Lakewood's council had authored the ordinances and was going to vote on them. Quotes, and when that gets misrepresented in the community, it has created some fear-mongering and fanning of the flames of tension. Shahrazé added that receiving threats, quote, is not unique to one city councilor. This is a problem in our community, and I think in a post-Trump world. People are emboldened to say things in ways that we haven't historically seen, Shahrazé said. She added that the way forward is to get to work to do, quote, what we need to do for our community. Twelfth annual Arvada Firehouse Chili Cook-Off raises $1,235 for AFPD. Station 9 wins People's Choice for Best Chili by Riley Dunn. The Friends of the Arvada Fire Protection District, a nonprofit that supports the AFPD, hosted the 12th annual Arvada Firehouse Chili Cook-Off on December 5th at the Arvada Elks Lodge. Raising over $1,200 for the department, Station 9 won the People's Choice for Best Chili. Each Arvada Fire Station station staff made home-cooked chili for entry in the contest, which was judged by a popular vote as over 250 attendees sampled and cast their ballots for their favorite entry. Last year, Station 5's B-Shift took home Best Chili Honors. Friends of Arvada Fire Protection District President Sue Stewart thanked everyone who made this year's event a success. We had another successful chili cook-off with a great turnout, plenty of tasty chili, and generous support that enables us to support our firefighters, community, and Arvada Fire, she said. We're thankful to those who make this event possible, including the attendees, the sponsors, volunteers, and our hosts, Arvada Elks. Faith Christian High School Closing Due to Multi-Million Dollar Debt by Riley Dunn. Faith Christian High School in Arvada will be closing at the end of 2022-23 school year due to mounting debt. Faith Christian Superintendent Andrew Haz and Pastor Jason King announced in a video message to families. The high school located on Carr Street has been acquired by Grace Church of Arvada for $12 million. Grace will reopen the high school for the 23-24 school year under a new name and leadership team, according to Grace Church Pastor Rick Long. Faith Christian's K-8 school, located on Ward Road, will remain open under Faith Christian Academy's banner. 
Haas did not respond for comment by press time, but said a representative from the school would be available for an interview with Colorado Community Media within the next couple of days. Faith Christian Academy celebrated its 50th anniversary in 21, but mounting financial woes have been plaguing the church over the past two decades, according to King's comment in the video message to families posted on YouTube on November 18th. The ministry's K-8 was founded in Denver in 1971, with the high school opening the following year. In an interview with the Arvada Press last year, has said the school's total K-12 enrollment was a little under 850. A figure, he said, was up from 100, up 100 from the previous school year. Has said his father, Martin, founded the school with the goal, quote, to have a school where the focus on God could be central and students would be encouraged to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Faith also has been embroiled in a number of high-profile lawsuits, including a racial discrimination suit filed by former teacher Greg Tucker and a suit filed by FCA against the Jefferson County Public Health Department over the department's COVID-19 protocols. The discrimination suit is ongoing after the Tenth Circuit Court dis, dis, declined to review it in bank while JCPH was granted an injunction in the COVID lawsuit. Long said that he was a parent at Faith Christian when Tucker was fired and that he was aware of FCA's lawsuits, stating that Grace Church's legal team would be investigating every single detail of the event that begat the legal proceedings. When we launch with whoever we launch with, we'll be sure it's exactly the standards and ideals of Grace Church, Long said. We pull no punches with how we operate as a ministry. Financial woes. In the video, King said that between 1991 and 2000, FCA took out a $6.8 million loan to purchase its Car Street campus. In 2002, Faith took out an additional $14.2 million to finance the building of its worship center. In 2014, the ministry converted the interest-only load to a conventional load, and by 2017, the ministry had only paid off about $1.4 million, leaving Faith with a debt of $19 million. At that point, the ministry began working to cut its overhead, with King stating that they were, quote, led of the Lord. The Board of Elders felt that the Lord was leading us to make some decisions that were difficult, but we truly believe they were led of the Lord. King, who became Faith's pastor in 2017, said, From day one, decided we're going to live between our means and we're going to trim the fat. We're going to restructure. We're going to run lean and run hard. King said that Faith has paid down $4 million of the $19 million debt, Nevertheless, with a looming $7 million balloon payment due in June, the ministry's Board of Elders unanimously decided to sell the Car Street property to Grace Church, which is led by Pastor Rick Long. With King calling the move, quote, a kingdom transaction that would improve faiths K-8. In a chain of events that can only be attributed to the leading of God, Faith Church and Grace Church became the answers to each other's prayers, King said. Please know, this decision was not made lightly. With this kingdom transaction, 
It will significantly reduce our debt and allow us to come closer to fully walking out God's call and purpose for us as a ministry. It will also raise the level of excellence and impact in FCA K-8, through King continued. This will also allow for the impact of Christian education in our city to rise to the level of impact we believe is needed and we were not able to do alone. End quote. Has called the decision heartbreaking and added that he felt that both, quote, schools are going to be better in the future. This is God's school. So if God wants to end the high school, that's his prerogative. Has said, the high school is going to continue in its location. There will be a name change, but there are some exciting days ahead for the high school. Has, who said he will be helping with the transition at the high school, added that Grace is looking to build a new field house, performing arts facility and classrooms, which Long confirmed. We've got some millions to put into the high school, Long said. We're in a fundraising mood right now. Has said that Faith is now in a, quote, much better position to invest in its K-8 through campus. Discrimination Lawsuit Tucker, the litigant in the lawsuit that claims that Faith fired Tucker, who taught at FCA's high school for 10 years, for holding a discussion on race with students, said that the school's closure won't impact the ongoing legal proceedings. This does not at all impact my ongoing litigation with the school or any impending litigation, Tucker said in Facebook post. We recently won another appeal in bank with the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals, and it may now be headed to the Supreme Court. In the post, Tucker called the closure really good news, owing to the school's long history of ignoring racism, sexual harassment and assault, and LGBTQ bullying and retaliating against students and teachers that speak out against those things. Nancy Felix, a former FCA parent whose daughter Ramya Sina said she experienced racial discrimination during her time at the school, said in a Facebook post that she would celebrate, quote, that racist school closing. In his Facebook post, Tucker raised concerns over the new leadership at FCA, calling Grace's leadership, quote, somewhat enmeshed with FCA's and calling for the school's new leadership to consider the reconciliation document that was put together by parents, students, and community members after Tucker's firing. I'm concerned that what will arise in its place will not be that much different, Tucker said. The leadership at Grace Church is somewhat enmeshed with the leadership at Faith Christian High School, and they were absolutely silent as the many stories about the dysfunctional leadership and toxic environment at the school came to light. So I won't be surprised if some of the leaders remain at the new school and some of the same problems persist. Long said he had not heard from Tucker, nor had been aware, made aware of any document from the former teacher. All four of Long's children are graduates of FCA, according to Long, who also said that the new high school would rent out FCA's K-8 gym until a new field house is built. 99% of FCA administrators will stay with Faith's K-8, according to Long. Moving forward, I want a high school that is affordable but is the best high school west of the Mississippi, Long said. FCA hosted a community meeting for families to hear from Grace Church's leadership on December 5th at its Carstreet campus, which Long said 
had a, quote, really, really great response overall. Long added that Grace would also operate a center of hope, community center, featuring educational programs, grief counseling, and other services on the Carr Street campus after school and extracurricular hours. Current FCA high school students will be given the option to pre-register and pay their deposit for the 2023-24 school year if they would like to attend the new school. Regarding teachers and faculty, Long said that his team will meet with each of them individually starting this month and reevaluate their future with the Grace Run High School. We have to get to the point of contract with each of them, Long said. For me, I've been around the school for 35 years. I coach there and obviously have friendships and relationships with some of them, not many of them. I want to treat this in the most honorable way, and we're going to be meeting with them individually. We're going to find out where they're at, and we're going to put the very best people in positions, Long continued. I know they're all aware of that, and I know they're all encouraged by the fact that if they're the very best person, they're going to be there. Long also said that he hoped to have, quote, a quarter of our kids on scholarship of some sort, and wanted to work with the ACE Foundation, the president of whom, Jason D. Freya, is a Grace Church leadership team member to achieve that goal. The new school will also have a code of conduct, according to Long. In a school, you have to have a code of conduct, and you have to have very, and these are teenagers, they're still in need of having structure and discipline and a code of conduct, he said. For us, we like what we have seen, but a lot of times it's not the letter of the law, it's the spirit of the law. When asked what about the existing FCA legacy he would like to improve on, Long pointed to inclusivity as a growth area. I don't think this is an either-or where they didn't do this and we're going to do this, but rather they did this and we're going to do it better, Long said. Our ministry is very grace-oriented, and that means we are absolutely love people where they're at and love people regardless. And we want to have an atmosphere in the school where every teacher, every student, every parent knows that they're loved, and there's an open line of communication, Long continued. Instead of just having very dogmatic, this is how things are, we want to have a little more open dialogue and a little more grace. Not that they haven't had that, but we think we as a ministry have a finger on the pulse of what that looks like. Long said the purchase of the Car Street property will close on February 1st, 2023. The school will remain faith Christian until the end of May 2023 and would reopen in August 23 under a new name, which will be unveiled after January 1st, 2023. Long added that Grace Church leaders are working with marketing firms to decide the new name. We are ecstatic to be able to pour into the next generation to create a Christian private education that will be excellent, affordable, family-friendly, and completely committed to loving others, Long said. There's a difference between being a religious school and being a relationally driven school, which is what we will be. Golden's Holiday Parade, a Holly Jolly Tradition by Corinne Westman.
The annual holiday parade in downtown Golden was bursting with festive joy December 10th as carolers, a marching band, dancers, and others performed. Dozens of local businesses and groups marched in the parade as well, sharing holiday spirit and occasionally candy with the crowd. The event, called the Old Christmas Parade, Old Golden Christmas Parade, or Old Golden Holiday Parade, brought thousands of locals and visitors into downtown for the morning to see beloved figures, fun floats, and more. Downtown's festive events continue with Jingle on the Avenue from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m., December 17th. Where the sidewalk ends. Locals want to make Golden safer for pedestrians, cyclists. Bike Walk Golden launches membership drive, city updating bike pedestrian master plan by Corinne Westman. For any Goldenite who's felt like they were playing Frogger when walking across the street or who's held their breath while biking through a traffic circle, there are ways to ensure Golden becomes a safer and more convenient place to walk and bike. This winter, advocacy group Bike Walk Golden is hosting a membership drive to encourage anyone who walks or bikes in and around the city to join. Also separately, the City of Golden is updating its bike and pedestrian master plan, which will provide guidance on policies, programs, and projects the city should implement long-term. Officials plan to start another round of public input in January, including public meetings, a survey, and more. The planning department intends to complete on the updated plan earlier this summer and bring it to the City Council for approval. Bike Walk Golden members formed the group about a year ago and have been providing input on the master plan updates and other items related to pedestrian and cyclist safety. Overall, they wanted Bike Walk Golden to be a bridge between residents and local government on these issues. The intention is to truly make it safer and more convenient to leave the car at home, to use more active transportation, member Andrea DeFreitz said. There are a lot of opportunities that opens up for the community as a whole. Bike Walk Golden's Membership Drive The idea for the group started when residents in three historic neighborhoods wanted to get together, but they didn't want to use their cars to do so. Thus, they started examining biking and walking connectivity throughout Golden. DeFreitz gave Golden's walkability and bikeability an A- or B-plus grade, saying the city benefits from its valley geography and lack of sprawl. She said the city and county have both invested a lot in various paths and intersections. So there's a solid foundation. However, she wanted to see better connectivity between those really good pieces. Fellow member Matthew Bird said he'd give Golden a C grade. The traffic circles on South Golden Road are especially egregious for cyclist safety. Beth Bidwell, the group's chair, somewhat agreed with Bird. While she'd give the city an A for recreational cycling, for day-to-day -day activities, there's room for improvement, she said. These are exactly the things the group wants to continue working on, said Bidwell, with Bidwell stating members have provided input on national surveys, worked with the city's Mobility and Transportation Advisory Board, and attended the Golden Bicycle Cruise. The members also hope to participate in Bike to Work Day this summer. 
Regarding the bike and pedestrian master plan update, the group felt the city was off to a good start. Bird appreciated how the city, quote, seems to be going in the direction of equitability and taking care of those who are typically underrepresented. Two specific spots the members wanted to see addressed were Ford Street between 14th Street and Coors Tech, saying it's very busy with tubers and restaurant customers, and South Golden Road, which forces cyclists to navigate several traffic circles. You have to have your eyes in all directions because drivers are going a minimum of 35 miles per hour, DeFreit said. If we had a structure in place, it'd be a very viable for people. It'd be very viable for people to bike from South Golden Road into downtown, but we have an urban highway of sorts cutting them off from that. Bidwell noted that both Ford Street and South Golden Road are the main routes for people to access Golden's grocery stores. So there's need to be to have improvements so it's safer and more convenient for people to walk or bike to get groceries. Overall, the members stressed that Bike Walk Golden isn't anti-car, but merely advocating for cyclists and pedestrian safety. The group offers a variety of volunteer opportunities and is open to anyone in the Golden area. For more information about joining, visit bikewalkgolden.org or email bikewalkgolden at gmail.com. Revising the Master Plan it's been 20 years since the plan first adopted a bike master plan and almost 15 years since it launched bikeability and walkability task forces. So, principal planner Matt Wimp stated it's time for an update. Since August, the planning department has been working on this 2023 master plan update. It hosted a survey, community meeting, safe routes to school assessments, a walking and biking ideas map, and more. While all those options are now closed, Wimp said the city intends to start another round of public engagement next month. The next big step internally will be compiling recommended policies, programs, and capital projects based on residents' input and other data, he described. What will move the needle for us as a city, Wimp continued. How can we really be the most targeted to achieve the vision that the community set out? Wimp said his team will be doing a lot of internal work over the next month, but will be posting more documents on guidinggolden.com in January. He hoped the public would provide feedback on those. Local Voices Red flag laws work, but they have to be used. Riders on the Range, Brian Sexton when Colorado passed its red flag law called Extreme Risk Protection Orders in 2019, El Paso County Sheriff Bill Elder announced his opposition. I am exploring all legal options and am vigorously challenging the constitutionality of this law. He wasn't alone. Many county sheriffs in Colorado said they believed the law didn't allow enough due process or was unconstitutional. But since then, some 20 of these so-called sanctuary counties have seen the light. Implementing this sensible law so many that weapons have been taken away from violent people. But it was not used in El Paso County's Colorado Springs, where a man recently killed five people and wounded many others at Club Q, an LGBTQ bar. The shooter, who survived, never had to go to court to, to defend himself against the red flag law. 
even after law enforcement was called in a year ago to stop him from threatening his family with a bomb. If anyone needed to be parted from weapons, it was the Club Q shooter. But sadly, in the wake of massacres like this, we frequently learn that no action was taken earlier by either law enforcement or family. The El Paso County Sheriff's Office, in a statement to the Colorado Sun, admitted that it has never initiated an extreme risk protection order. The first step in removing a firearm from someone under Colorado law. The red flag law builds in due process, as only a judge can begin the process of removing someone's guns. A second court appearance is necessary to extend a temporary protection order beyond two weeks. While the red flag law is now used in 19 other states, the Associated Press found the Colorado residents invoke the law less often than residents of other states. Why not? A major reason is the anti-democratic ideology of county sheriffs who choose what laws to enforce. Sheriffs have bought into the peculiar notion that a county has ultimate legal authority to uphold the Constitution of the United States. One result of this old posse comitatus approach is that local sheriffs feel free to ignore state laws they don't like. All they have to do is label them unconstitutional. This attitude was on full display in several states when they issued emergency orders to curb the spread of COVID-19. Rural sheriffs in Nevada, New Mexico, Oregon, Washington, and California resisted. They defied the orders of their state governments and refused to enforce public health measures. The backbone of this county approach is best represented by the Constitutional Sheriff and Peace Officer or Association, a group based in Arizona and founded by Richard Mack, described by the Anti-Defamation League as, quote, an anti-government extremist. Mack is also credited as a founding member of the Oath Keepers, infamous for their involvement in the January 6th Capitol riot. In my home state of Oregon, this rhetoric has made inroads through a contentious ballot measure restricting magazine capacity and implementing a new firearm permitting system recently passed. Several county sheriffs have joined lawsuits to prevent the reforms from going into effect. Many more of Oregon's 36 county sheriffs have stated they will not enforce all or parts of the law. While not all these sheriffs may view themselves as members of the Constitutional Sheriff and Peace Officer Association, the influence of its ideology is undeniable. You would think it goes without saying, but the, the job of a county sheriff has never been to interpret laws as they see fit. Sheriffs are elected officials entrusted by their community to apply laws fairly. Allowing sheriffs to act as supreme legal arbiters is wrong-headed and dangerous. If the El Paso County Sheriff or the shooter's family had implemented the red flag law, a massacre might have been prevented. So-called constitutional sheriffs couch their rhetoric and ideology as a fight to preserve liberty and injustice. It is almost as if they were living in a fictionalized version of the Wild West, where a lone sheriff with a gun upholds civilization. That is not the world we live in. Guns are not sacrosanct possessions. Unstable and dangerous people should not be allowed to stockpile weapons, and activating the red flag law can save lives. 
and our sh- if our sheriffs if our sheriffs won't uphold the laws, maybe it's time to vote for someone who will. Brian Sexton is a contributor to Riders on the Range, ridersontherange.com.org, excuse me, an independent nonprofit dedicated to spurring conversation about western issues. He writes about wildlife and hunting in Oregon. Vail Film Festival brings the world into viewers' homes. Coming attractions by Clark Reader. For those who have never attended a film festival, the prospect of navigating all the screenings and events can be a little daunting. Plus, there's the added challenges of finding time to eat between movies and getting from one theater to another. It can all be a bit much. So, while one does miss out on some of the camaraderie that is part of the in-person experience, it's difficult to argue with the flexibility and convenience that virtual festivals provide. The 19th Annual Vail Film Festival, which ran from Thursday, December 1st through Sunday, December 4th, provided virtual viewers the same thoughtfully curated films, all of which highlight the work of female filmmakers, as ever and allowed them to peruse the more than 20 offerings from the comfort of their couch. Quote, The challenge and focus this year was curating the film program. Since it is online, we wanted to make sure we selected a variety of films that could complement each other and hopefully be entertaining and inspiring for the audience, explained Scott Cross, co-executive director of the festival, in an email interview. Film is such an immersive art form and can be transformative as well as entertaining. We hope audiences come away feeling entertained and maybe having discovered a new filmmaker or filmmakers whose work has moved them in some way. During this year's festival, I saw 10 films over four days and have selected four favorites. Stories that moved me, made me laugh, and rethink how I see the world. The Cave of Adullam, release date, available now on ESPN+. The work of Jason Wilson does in the documentary Cave of Adullam is truly God's work. His passion and impact brings over, brims over in every frame of the film. In the heart of Detroit, Wilson's dojo, the titular cave, specifically focuses on giving young black boys the best chance possible at living the lives they want and deserve. While he does teach martial arts, he focuses just as much on time and energy on emotional stability and discipline, mental health, and achieving goals. And the work is immensely difficult, but totally doable. Seeing the young boys taking the first steps toward becoming the men they want to be is some of the most powerful storytelling you'll see all year. The Cave of Adullam, A-D-U-L-L-A-M, just like Wilson, means to challenge and inspire Both succeed on all fronts. Dear 13, release date to be announced. Honestly, I haven't the faintest idea how kids today do it. Growing up has never been easy, but with the technology and social media options young people have access to nowadays, there are challenges that I never considered when I was young. Alexis Neophytide's eye-opening documentary, Dear 13, takes viewers all over the world to show the vast variety of what it means to be 13 years old in modern societies. The children in the film are wise beyond their years and yet achingly youthful. This is the kind of movie that sends you back into your own past to look at how you have grown and changed over the years. 
and it's never preachy or condescending. We put an awful lot on kids these days, and the film explores what they actually want from the word, from the world, and their lives. It's the best kind of documentary, both enlightening and entertaining. My Sister Liv, release date TBA. My Sister Liv is the kind of film that absolutely knocks you flat, and it should. That's the point. The Alan Hicks documentary, which takes place in Colorado, follows sisters Tessa and Liv as they grow, as they navigate the challenges of growing up with social media, depression, and anxiety. While there have been great steps forward toward forward made in the areas of mental health and suicide awareness, there are still all kinds of stigmas and shame that teens and youths must deal with. You get to hear firsthand from those struggling with those very issues, and that just reaches in and grabs your heart. It is so powerful to see how it impacts daily life for so many. This film is heartbreaking, call to arms, one that everyone should watch. We Burn Like This, release dates available now on streaming platforms. Delicate business is being conducted in We Burn Like This, Alana Waxman's devastating exploration of contemporary anti-Semitism in rural America. The film follows Ray, an arresting Madeline Coughlin, a young woman living in Billings, Montana, as she navigates a life full of challenges and prejudices. She has her best friend Chrissy B., the reliably great Devery Jacobs, but not much else. The audience is treated to a searing portrait of strength and weakness as Ray tries to find steady footing in unsteady times. Whether or not you faced similar challenges as Ray, there is no denying the film's power and dedication to its message. This one leaves a mark. Clark Reader's column on culture appears on a weekly basis. He can be reached at clarkwithane.reader at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News. My name is Gregory Haddock. If you enjoyed this program, Please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.